You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Sportsman's Nation is a 2% for conservation certified business. And on August 21st, you can join other conservationists all over the world in supporting Community Conservation Day. It's a day for anyone to give their time and or dollars back to their local ecosystems and favorite conservation causes. For more information on how you can participate, visit fishandwildlife.org. Three, two, one. All right. It's been a while, but uh, my good buddy Tom Pletblinski is back on the phone. How you doing, man? Well, good, Dan. How you been? I've been good, man. Uh, how was your turkey season, or if did you even have a turkey season then? <laughs> no. No, I don't go. Okay. Every year I say I'm going to go, and then they don't go. I just, I'm always <laughs> just too busy and too wound up doing deer hunting stuff. You know, yep. that's where my passion is, and I, all of a sudden, it's, oh, hey, the season's open. It's open? Yeah. And I'm <laughs> That's funny. How about I, you? I'm the same way, man. I just, three days is all I commit, and uh, I probably could commit more if I really wanted to, but I, instead of going out and turkey hunting this fourth season, I decided something similar. I went and put out mineral. I went and mushroom hunted, um, and I, uh, I'm prepping my trail cameras to get those out as well. So I, pa- I passed on the turkey uh, to do other things. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Whatever. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not not turkey hunting because I'm watching TV. It's just because I got other stuff that I right, right. Much rather be doing in the outdoors. So, yeah. Yep. Do you ever go looking for mushrooms? No, I guess. I guess I, I don't specifically take a day and mushroom hunt, but what I, if it coincides with a day when the timing is right, if I'm doing tree stands on a farm or mowing or, you know, something related with deer hunting and it, and it coincides with the mushroom season, yeah. then I'll just take a half an hour and I'll walk in here or, or something like that. But otherwise, no, it's kind of like the turkey hunting thing where I just, I'm doing other stuff. Yeah. Well, let's talk about things that you're doing right now because it's that time of year where people are starting to prep for food plots uh i think the the portion of the year where guys are burning uh crp or grass is probably done but uh what kind of projects is tom peplinski working on uh right now on your farms so the majority of my habitat work is all done winter and early spring spring food plots are done it's not too late though so i mean if people are listening it's definitely not too late to be putting in corn or beans that that's what i consider my my spring food plots yep 
Uh, I also put in a little bit of pheasant habitat this year, or I should say pheasant food plots with a sorghum plot. And I just got that in the other day. Definitely not too late for that. Yeah. But as as we're going here, it's it's going to get too late. Yeah. So uh, I would say by the end of May, but, you know, heck, there's guys in Wisconsin that are putting in corn and beans in the middle of June. So don't don't think that it's too late. As long as you get some timely rains, you're, you're good to go yet. Yeah. And I think... I think for the guys who are doing it specifically for deer hunting, it's yeah like the timing of when the beans or whatever get into the ground isn't near as important if you were trying to harvest in October. Oh, absolutely not. Yep. And and not only that, but these these farmers that are putting in early beans and early corn and they're running 115, 120-day corn and they're running a 3.7 bean down here in southern Iowa. That's because they're trying to maximize yield for a living, for a profit. If it ends up getting a little late and you still want to put some beans or corn in, just go with a 90-day corn or a Category 3.0 bean. Again, that's southern Iowa. Yeah. And you can go you can go to end of May and early June. You know, there's I've seen farmers already take off first crop hay and then drill in beans behind it. So and that's down here. So yeah. that's, it's definitely not too late. I, I'm done because the weather was good this year and it was a dry spring. And so I'm done, but it's not definitely not too late to be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. So as you know, we've kind of had a cooler spring here than what I would call normal. Uh, and certain parts of the state are even under drought condition. That might be changed when this, uh, as this front kind of comes through in the next seven days. Like everybody in Iowa is going to be getting some rain. It sounds like, but uh, when it comes to like indicators of when you need to get your food plots in or your beans and corn in uh, for deer hunting food plots, what are like temperatures, soil temps, like what are you looking for to, to, you know, say, all right, time to get on the tractor. Well, I'm looking at planting conditions and then a date. I, and, and I'm not saying you shouldn't go out with a thermometer and measure soil temps, but I don't, I, especially with like beans, beans will sit dormant if it's a little colder out and, and they'll sprout when the, when the, when it warms up. So I'm looking at, basically april 25th for beans and or corn is when i'll start and then it's just basically if the ground is conducive to planting so some of a lot of my plots it's actually just a broadcast i broadcast the seed and disc in it's nothing nothing special i broadcast seed i broadcast fertilizer i'll amend for ph if i have to and then i'll just disc the seed and fertilizer in that's majority of my beans and corn are planted that way. And then I do run a planter. Uh, so it's the same. It's it's basically the same thing, except I'm using the planter to put the beans and the corn in. Gotcha. But it can't be, you can't have mud. I mean, down here it's all, it's clay. So if it's, if it's wet, you're not planting. Yeah. So how do you, uh, I mean, how often are you doing soil tests? to see if you have to do, uh, add, I don't know, different amounts of fertilizer for, for your food plots. So this, and it's funny you bring this up because I'm, I'm on several Facebook groups and 
I also get questions submitted to me with my writings and I get submit, you know, people ask like clients of mine ask about soil tests. It's just, it's a hot topic. It just seems like everybody's always talking about soil tests and I do it differently. So the first thing I'll say is if you're doing soil tests and that works for you, you should keep doing it. I'm not, I'm not an advocate of saying you shouldn't do that if it's working for you. However, I do so many food plots and I'm, I'm not talking like five, I'm talking like 30 ish, if not more a year. Um, corn and beans are bigger ones, but I also do just a ton of small uh, transition plots and green food plots in the fall. And I'm just, I learned a long time ago that I am not the guy that's going to send out 30 soil tests every year. So it's kind of a long story, but I had a really good dairy farm friend of mine from Wisconsin that years ago taught me a method that he used to determine how, how he wanted to fertilize his corn and soybeans or silage or alfalfa for dairy farming. And he basically said it's the nutrient removal rate for that crop. So, for example, if you are planting corn, and I'll use corn and beans for an example. If you're planting corn, you have to target a certain yield. Even if, even if you get a soil, a soil test, you have, to, you have to tell the co-op or whoever you're getting your soil test from, hey, I'm targeting 130 bushel beans, or I'm sorry, 130 bushel corn, 220 bushel corn, because that's what you fertilize for is that yield. But you don't need a soil test to tell you that. You can, and I used to do this all just longhand by math because I would have the rates, like it, I think it's like 0.9 units of nitrogen per bushel of corn. But now with our smartphones, there's actually apps. And I think, I don't, I don't know the name of the app I use, but I think it's like egg PhD or something, nutrient removal rates or something like that. But anyways, you can just put corn in and it'll tell you 150 bushel corn, the removal rate for the for the corn and the stover, which is the stalk and the leaves and everything, is so much nitrogen, so much phosphate, so much potassium, and then it gets into the micronutrients. So when I'm fertilizing, my philosophy is I want to leave the soil the way it is. So when I'm all done with my food plot and the deer and the turkeys have consumed the corn, have consumed the beans, I want the soil to be where it, has, where it is when I'm starting. So I don't necessarily want to use the nutrients that are in the soil because I want it left the way I found it. So okay. I just use the nutrient. I use the nutrient removal rate, which tells me 150 bushel beans or 150 bushel corn, excuse me. I got to put in, and I'm making these numbers up now because yeah. I don't know them offhand. I got to put in 150 units of nitrogen. I got to put in 80 units of phosphate, another 110 units of potash and i'll get my 150 bushel corn and i've been doing it that way for 25 years and i've had no problems with having exceptional food plots yeah the one thing i do test for is ph and i'll do that every three four five years depending on the soil depending on how familiar i am with that farm but i don't even do that with a soil test i buy litmus paper off the internet and I just take a, a soil sample myself. I mix up some distilled water and put the litmus paper in the, basically the mud slurry and it'll tell me what my pH is immediately. I don't have to send it off. I don't have to, 
I don't have to do any kind of mailing or, which for me, that's, I'm not going to do 30, yeah. 30 soil tests and, and send that off every year. And it's just, it's not practical for me to do it that way. Yeah. So I will soil test for pH and I'll amend for pH, but I fertilize based on the removal rate. Okay. So uh, do they have all that knowledge and information for a different variety of uh, food plots? Because, I mean, we're talking corn and beans, but let's say a guy wants to plant brassicas or clover or yep. all that other stuff. Yeah, they do. Yeah, so you can you can do your own research and figure it out, but the app, and again, I apologize if, I, if I'd have known, but if you just, if you go on your Play Store, um, just type in nutrient removal calculator or something like that, or just kind of play, and you'll find it. Yeah, I'm sure it's and easy for it, people to find, yeah. Yes, it's easy. And it's not, it might not say brassica, but type in turnip, because right. that, you know what I mean? Because that's, that's what it is, and they'll tell you. It's in there. Okay. Yep. So when it comes, you know, when it comes to that, then um, let's say uh, uh, there's someone out here who maybe is trying to do it budget friendly because, uh, you know, getting a, uh, you know, planning a food plot, you know, it can be cheap and it can be pretty expensive, especially if you're talking about planting corn and planting soybeans and then putting all the uh, you know, the nutrients, uh, the fertilizer in the ground and, and potentially spraying it. Is there anything that a guy could do to make that process um, uh, like more budget friendly and still get good results? Not great results, but good enough to deer hunt results? Yeah. So, and that's me. I'm, I'm not, I do the best I can, the most efficiently and the most cost effective I can. So I'm not, I'm not playing farmer. I'm not trying to get 220 bushel corn and make a profit on this. If I'm getting 150 bushel corn, but I can save a ton of money, uh, that's, that's fantastic. It's a food plot. You know, I, I stress that all the time. So the first thing is that your seed cost. If you buy a bag of genetic seed today with, with like farm traits and coated and you, you could be 250 a bag or you could get that same seed that's a year old for 180 a bag so that you know just just something that's that simple uh you can get non-traded seed or maybe it has less traits um maybe it's not coated etc for even cheaper you can get plot seed so a lot of times you can pick up a it's a it's a small bag so I think maybe maybe it'll do like one acre where a normal bag of corn is 80,000 seeds, which will do two and a half acres. Plot seed would be like one acre, but sometimes you can get that for dirt cheap or free if you can find it. <clears throat> Same with beans. Beans, I, I get the cheapest agriculture beans that I can that has the trait that I want and the maturity class that I want. So if I get, let's say someone's going to give me free soybeans but they're uh, maturity class 1.7 well i won't use them because planting a 1.7 in southern iowa you're probably going to have shattering issues because they're going to mature way too early but if someone's going to give me free three and a half um that are liberty link or roundup ready or something that i can use i'll take them i don't care if they're a year old and you can do if you're not if you're worried about it about the seed being good because beans will last several years, corns will la corn will last several years. You can always do your own in-house germ test 
discrimination test by just taking a handful of seeds and throwing them in a cool whip container and um, on, on maybe some wet paper towel and, and keep them wet and see how many sprout or root and germinate. Okay. And that'll, that'll tell you where you're at. But yeah, so seed cost and then fertilizer cost. Let's go back to that app again. They're going to give you two columns in that app for fertilizing. One's going to be the nutrient removal rate for the grain. The other one is for the stover, which is everything else besides the grain, like the stalk and the leaves. And then one that's combined. If you wanted to save money and you thought your land was pretty good, pretty fertile, you could just just fertilize for the grain removal. And if the and if the first year you have a food plot and it turns out relatively good or really good, then you're good to go because the nutrients that you did not feed for the stover is all laying on the ground yet anyways, and it'll all it'll all decompose and get eaten by worms and be in the soil for the next round you see what i'm saying yeah yeah okay so the only time you really the only time you really have to fertilize for the grain and the stover is if you're in really poor ground like sand or rocky soil or something where that you just don't think the nutrients are there or if you're going to remove all of that like these these dairy farmers or some of these farmers that i grew up with that are planting for silage well they're taking everything so then you so then you need to fertilize for the the grain and the stover because you're removing that entire crop. There's nothing left. Yeah. But food plotters aren't doing that. Okay. So, so the other thing is Go ahead. I think you're better off the one thing I wanted to say is let's say you're 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 hell bent on putting in some beans or some corn, you are way better off putting in one acre of corn and doing it, you know, quote unquote right with the proper uh, fertilization stuff like that than to try and put in five corns and half acid because you'll probably get nothing if you don't do it at least partially good you just won't so you're better off to do less really good than to try and put in five acres of, of corn for example and corn is a tough one if you don't if you don't fertilize corn pretty heavy you just you're not going to have a very good uh, food plot where stuff like soybeans winter rye, some of this other stuff is just way more forgiving. Corn is probably the most nutrient um, dependent out of all the food plots that I plant anyways. Okay. What about spraying for weeds? I mean, I've, I've, I've heard stories about it. You know, a, a guy, he, he does the fertilizer. He does the, uh, the, the good seed. It starts to grow. Then weeds overtake it. And it doesn't turn out near as good. Is how important is spraying for the weeds and the other vegetation that grows up, so that the the uh, the actual food plot seed gets all the nutrients? Well, it depends on what your planting method is. I, some I see some guys are really getting into this, where they're they're planting heavy cover crops, a winter rye, and then they're drilling in soybeans in a winter rye and they're rolling the winter rye. Well, then you don't need any herbicide, but to get in this, to get into stuff like that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but some of these grain drills, these guys are buying are 10 grand or more. And again, that's fine. Um, but to kind of get into that, it's, you're looking at pretty good outlay of money. If you don't already have that equipment because you're farming already. Um, most food plotters, you know, in the 90%, including myself, we just don't have stuff like that. Right. So I'm looking, I'm looking when I'm putting in beans or corn, I'm looking for 
traded seed so that I know I can spray. So for many, many years, Roundup Ready corn and soybeans, you know, were the ticket. So you planted it, you waited four or five weeks after it came up, your food plot looked pretty terrible because it was solid weeds and you made one pass of post-emergent glyphosate, which is Roundup, and it killed everything off besides your corn and your beans, and then they they kept growing canopied over and you had a fabulous food plot. Yeah. And that that can still be the case in many areas, but down by me, there there's several weeds, um, horsetail, or it's called mare's tail, horsetail, same thing, water hemp, uh, palmer amaranth, and there's probably some others even that Roundup won't touch it anymore. They're just in, and that's another subject on whose fault that is and what happened, but these, these, some of these broadleaves have become tolerant to Roundup. Oh, really? So then you're getting in, oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, you, you can you can spray a the maximum label rate of Roundup over mare's tail on one of my farms, and it doesn't, it, I don't even know if it slows it down. You can't even tell you sprayed it. Hmm. <clears throat> but if you switch traits and go to Liberty Link, Liberty will smoke it like nothing. You know, and I don't, I don't know how long that'll last, 10 years, 15 years, I don't know, before that mare's tail will figure that out, and then it'll be tolerant. But that's, that's, every farm is different. Um, you'll have, as a food potter, you're just going to kind of have to figure that out. But if you're having problems with weed control with Roundup Ready, then you have to get into a, a Liberty Link type seed. And now they're coming out with Enlist. I think Enlist is some of the stuff I planted this year, which is glyphosate tolerant, which is Roundup. It's glyphosate, I can't, I don't even know how to pronounce it, which is Liberty. And it's also 2,4-D, uh, one of the different uh, mixtures of 2,4-D, a non-volatile mixture. It's completely tolerant of all three of those herbicides. So that's kind of what I've been going with, specifically for this one farm where it's in a farming community and a lot of the, a lot of the weeds are, are figuring out how to sur- survive the herbicides. Yeah. Man, but it is, a, it is an important step. It's yeah. an important step for your spring-planted plots because if you skip it, you just spent could be a fair amount of money on fertilizer and seed, and if you don't spray it, you just won't you just won't have much. Yeah, where do you think people go wrong? Like if if they're they're doing the work, they're playing the food plots. Where do you feel that uh, an average Joe who maybe is only a couple years into food plotting goes wrong and uh, spends all the money and gets jack crap? for a uh for a food plot uh probably i don't know probably cutting corners maybe probably taking on too much than you can handle i think is a problem uh you know not having the equipment so you have a four-wheeler and a, and a drag and you're, you're thinking you're going to put in a five acre corn plot and it's just not just be honest with yourself you're not going to be able to do it and then you're not going to be able to go back and spray five acres with a with a backpack sprayer. I mean, if you can, that's great. Um, just maybe taking too much on and cutting corners, or you know, skipping the herbicides or uh, stuff like that. So that that would be like what are hunters doing wrong that that food plot doesn't produce a yield? Yeah. Right. So that's 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 one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is 
even if you get all that right, if you're if you put these food plots in the wrong places and or hunt them the wrong way, that your farm would actually could could actually be worse than if you had not even put the food source in. Explain that. Make it worse. Explain that for us. So I'll just I'll just use an example. You uh you add three acre soybean plot and you go out and you get the, the branded soybeans with the with the whitetail hunting stars that are selling these beans and they're the greatest and you fertilize and you spray and it's this thing's immaculate. You got your pictures all over Facebook of how this soybean food plot looks and it's fantastic. But every time you access your property, your only access is past that food plot. So in the morning, you're walking past it and you're bumping deer off. And in the evening, you're walking past it to get back to your truck and you're bumping deer off. So that might sound like an exaggeration, but there's, it happens all the time. And what you've done is if you, you just basically set up a scenario where you attract all these deer to this soybean food plot. And then you're bumping them off and bumping them off and bumping them off. And you've just made your, you just made your hunting property worse. And now they'll either leave your, leave your hunting property or they've got you completely patterned and they're going to sit in their bed until dark and then they'll go out and eat, eat on that soybean food plot. Right. So, and, you... that, and that's, that's, that, that's just not that scenario. I mean, there's just think about all the different scenarios where, or let's say you're hunting over that food source. So same scenario, you're not walking past it. You can sneak in real easy, or you can sneak right in there and you're all pumped up, but you continually hunt that food source. And the big old doe busts you. And then the three-year-old uh, raghorn eight-pointer that you weren't going to shoot caught you doing a rattling sequence, and he busted you. And then other deer got downwind of you, and they busted you. It's kind of the same deal. You, you burn it out, and you're worse off for it. Yeah. So there's just... I can definitely see how that would be a problem where uh, you didn't like a guy didn't think about, okay, now that I have this, this, this food plot that's going to attract deer, maybe I should think about access or maybe I should think about access before I put the tree stand in. Like if I only have a North wind and I can only access this property from the North and my food plots on the North side, well, there's going to be deer coming from the South catching your wind every single time there's a north wind or, or you know whatever scenario it may be i can definitely see yeah. how you know and then they get excited and it's like october right and they're coming you know they're they're coming to this food plot every day because they got nocturnal pictures of a big buck and then they're just casting scent every single yep. time yeah i get it yep yeah i'm getting busted and the, the other i don't know how this ever got coined and i'm not picking on it i'm, I'm not but you see it all over now is the kill plot. Everybody, and there's actually manufacturers selling kill plot seed. So just imagine you have a, a smaller property, 40 acres, and of course the kill plot's right in the center of your property, right? Because that's the best. It's the most remote. And then how, now how do you hunt that? So it's, it's a kill plot by, by title, by design, right? How, do you, how, do you, how can you possibly hunt a little food plot in the middle of 40 acres surrounded by cover? Well, you can once or twice, and then after that, your property is just going to, it's going to, it's going to diminish. It's the point of diminishing returns is going to happen so fast on that property. And then pretty soon it's October 20th and there's not a deer left. Yeah. Or 
they're not or they're nocturnal, and you're just like, why why are these deer not coming until after dark? Because yeah. there's no way to access that so-called kill plot without completely bumbling at least a half of your property yeah. on any given wind direction because your scent is, you're just basically doing a drive through your property. So that's, yeah. that's another big mistake that people make. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. You mentioned something about, you know, a food plot seed that is focused towards the hunting industry, right? Just the hunting community. What's the difference between, I'll just use a soybean or maybe even a clover. I think clover would probably be the mo- a little bit more popular. Something that's um, marketed towards the hunting industry versus something a guy could go buy at a co-op. Uh, so a lot of the stuff is the same exact seed. So when you, when you say what's the difference, price i guess price would be the difference so a lot of it's the same seed yeah so and i think because i haven't i haven't bought what i would call like branded or marketed food plot seed for many many years many many years but i think they still have to put like if you get uncle charlie's mega buck clover mix i think they still have to put that it's so much medium red clover, so much Ladino clover. I think that's still on. There's still a label. Yeah, they still have to mark it. They have to mark down what's in there. Yeah. 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 So that's that is if they say that it's Ladino medium red clover and whatever other clovers that that's the that's the identical seed that you're getting if you're buying it bulk or at the co-op. Now that's not to say that's not to say that the co-op might not have um, clover seed that is more conducive to a food plot. Um, I don't plant a lot of clover, so I you kind of threw a, a deal where I'm not real familiar with the clover, yeah. but I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's 30 different varieties of clover or even more. And some are probably more for pasture or haying. Uh, whereas some of them maybe are shorter growing and have, you know, are softer and more, more, uh, likable for a deer food plot but let's just say that 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 seed is medium red clover let's just say that if it's medium red clover it's medium red clover it doesn't matter if it's in a bag with with my picture on it or a tv star or if you get it at a co-op it's still medium red clover yeah so if if it's convenient because you don't have a co-op by you or you know, it's access or shipping or whatever, and you buy, you know, the branded food plot seed. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Just recognize that you're probably paying a lot more than what you have to. Right. Okay. So other than kind of, kind of, we've kind of really been all over the place when it comes to like planting food plots and stuff like that. Is there anything else like, uh, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Like, is there anything that you would like to pass on to the people who are listening? Like, um, don't be afraid to try this. It sounds intimidating, but don't be afraid to try it because it'll it'll help you, you know, get the best results as far as the food plot is concerned. Well, so if you've never done it before or if you're struggling, then the easiest food plots to start with are fall planted cereal grains 
So to anyone that's listening is if, if you want to get into food plots and you're, and you just want to get your feet wet and you don't know if your four wheeler is going to pull the, pull the little disc that you have, you know, and you just, you want to start going. Cause that's how I started. The easiest thing to do is to do a fall planted green food plot of cereal grains, which is winter rye, winter wheat, oats. That's, they're the most tolerant of everything. Um, winter rye, you don't even have to fertilize. It'll grow in the, it'll grow in a pickup truck bed if it gets rain. So it's very forgiving. And then once, once you figure out kind of what kind of equipment you have and how it works and stuff like that, well, then you can get into, uh, spring planted corn and beans and you can start doing more research on the different uh, traded stuff. You know, I, I got into Liberty and Roundup and some people, if you've never done this before, that can be really intimidating. So the easiest, the easiest stuff is green, green cereal grains planted in the fall. And I always, I always time that. Southern Iowa, I'm doing that early September, very late August. Uh, maybe Northern Iowa, maybe, maybe go a little earlier. I, I guess I wouldn't. Um, and then just get a decent seed bed and with with tillage and uh, throw out your seed and disc it in or drag it in and throw a little triple nineteen out there with cereal grains and you're good to go and it's gonna it, it'll grow it you just don't it just it's very tolerant of everything. Gotcha. It's browse tolerant. It's browse tolerant for deer. So if the deer eat it to the ground, it'll keep as long as it's got rain. It'll just keep coming back. And that's something so, that that that's something for a budget friendly guy too. Right. I mean, is that, oh, an, sure. is that yeah. an annual or does that come back every year? Well, if you do, if you do oats, as soon as it freezes, it'll die. Okay. And if you do winter rye and winter wheat, if you plant it in the fall, it'll actually be green all winter long. So it's actually a decent like fall and even in a winter plot. And then in the spring, it'll come back and it'll just roar out of the ground. It'll be the first thing green. And it seems like that stuff goes about an inch every day if you get some rain like here in may it'll just go it goes nuts um but then it's but then it's done unless it recedes itself so if you just let it go i mean i i'm hoping that people listening to the podcast have seen like videos or pictures or stuff of you know like the wheat harvest or the winter rye harvest that happens in late summer if you don't harvest that winter rye or winter wheat it'll just eventually fall over and reseed itself so normally I'll terminate my winter rye like in June. I'll just spray it because if it reseeds itself, it's going to be most likely way too thick because just imagine if you put down right. 100 pounds, if you put down 100 pounds on an acre of rye and now it reseeds itself, now you probably got 1,000 pounds to the acre. It's going to be pretty thick. Okay. All right. So I'll usually, term, I'll usually terminate it and plant it again. And, and winter rye seed is, I don't even know what it is. 15 bucks for a hundred pounds, 20 bucks for a hundred pounds. So I mean, it's cheap. Yeah. Yeah. The, now this next question that I'm going to ask you is kind of a loaded question because I feel like there's a ton of different scenarios. Um, let's say you don't live on your property, right? You go, you plant and it gets the rain. So you, you kind of just assume that your food plot's doing okay. You go to check it and the, the food plot looks like crap right? It's struggling. Um, is there anything a guy can do 
halfway through the summer or maybe right before um, the season kicks off to uh, rejuvenate his food plot so it um, can can get off the struggle bus and back to a really good food plot before the season starts. So are you, are you, you mean like spring, <clears throat> excuse me, like spring planted food plots um, can turn out good for you? Yeah, it can be a spring one, or maybe we can even talk about something that you're going to do in September uh, or, or late summer. That's going to be, you know, where, where that plant is going to be, um, mature and you know the deer are going to sure. be coming to it during the hunting season sure so corn and beans if you have a if you have a failed food plot in corn and beans which is completely possible uh, drought would be one reason why they would fail um, or over browsing so you can have you can have an acre of corn wiped out by deer or raccoons in a week i've seen it happen it's happened to me and same with soybeans. I, I don't know that uh, raccoons eat soybeans much, but deer, that's a high high population area, uh, area, not a lot of agriculture in the area. Deer can wipe out an acre of beans pretty quick. So you can have failed food plots even if you didn't do anything right, or if you didn't do anything wrong, I should say. Yeah. Um, but the nice thing about a spring-planted plot is if it does fail, most of the time, the fertilizer you put down is still available. Uh, so you can just replant a fall green plot. Uh, again, cereal rye in uh, early September. The other thing you can do, you know, you might kind of think this is an advanced technique or something, but with soybeans, as soon as soybeans start to yellow, you can actually broadcast cereal rye or winter wheat right over top of the beans just as they start to yellow and that stuff will come up with the next rain like crazy so even if you have a soybean plot that that you're not quite sure if it did fail so the deer really hammered it and there might be some pods and there might not be and you're not quite sure you don't have to kill that stuff under because if you kill it under it's gone you can simply broadcast your cereal grains and winterize my favorite but right over top 100 pounds to the acre and it'll come up it'll as soon as those leaves start to fall that cereal rye is just boom right up through it and so now you have soybeans and rye in the same in the same plot so that's another like recovery technique that's easy because it doesn't yeah no tillage you know no tillage involved and you're out 20 bucks plus time to just broadcast that winter rye in there and i feel like corn you could I feel like that would be a good option for somebody who doesn't have the ability to plant or keep a food plot. Like for me, I hunt on an active farm, right? Um, And, you know, I've never talked to them about leaving crops up, but maybe this year I'm thinking about having that conversation where, you know, go into the beans and say, hey, once it's yellow, can I? Do you mind if I broadcast some winter wheat, um, so that you know I can have this little food plot over here? To, you know, talk to the farmer to see if it's a big, you know, a big deal. And I feel like that would be the best option because that way you don't have to spray, you don't have to do any work with a tractor, you don't have to do the um, the you know, the, the combining of the beans, you're just relying on somebody else to do all the work for you. And eventually when they go to plant again in the spring, the following year, 
they're going to go spray that whole field down anyway. Yeah, and, and cereal rye is considered a cover crop. So many farmers are actually starting to realize the benefits of putting in cover crops. So there's a very high likelihood the farmer would say, I don't, that would be great. You know, I don't know why they would say no. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So for 20 bucks, you can have an acre of uh, winter rye standing out in front of you or winter wheat. Yeah. So, so yeah, when would a, when would a guy do that? And I'm now I'm asking just personally because I see a lot of farmers. You know, there, there's a there's a couple different methods of farming. Like uh, when it comes to beans, a lot of farmers will simply just mow it down and not disc it up. Um, you know, turn the turn the top over. Uh, some are getting to that. Um, they'll just drill the beans the following spring right in between the corn rows that were that are already there. Right. So they don't, Mm -hmm. they're doing that less is more type thing, but then there's some that they'll combine and then they'll come through and they'll disc or, uh, I don't know, not necessarily plow, but disc the whole field. So it's, it's black dirt again. It's not like plowing where they're turning it over, but it's disking. Would, would, a um, uh, I guess, a, a, a winter rye survive that disking or is that something you want to do after they disc? I would say after. Okay. Yeah, so they're probably coming through with some kind of field conditioner or a cultivator or something. Yeah, cultivator. That's what I'm yeah. looking for. Yeah, and they're doing they're doing fall tillage. Yep. So, so here, here's another thing that maybe people don't know, is winter rye will germinate and don't don't quote me on the, but it's like it'll germinate like at 34 degrees or something just insane. So last year I actually. I actually targeted one specific deer during late bow season, and I put out some winter rye in some corn that was annihilated by the raccoons back in August in a little inside corner, and I didn't put that rye down. Again, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, work it in. I didn't no field work. I just broadcast it, and it was like November first or October thirtieth or something before I put that rye down. And by the end of November, like for the last week of bow season, which is when I was targeting, and, and I was done, so I never even got to, to use that plot. But had I been able to, that that rye was up six inches. Wow. So I didn't I didn't put that I didn't broadcast those winter rye seeds out until late October or very early November, and I had six six inch tall winter rye by the end of November. Okay. So that's you can. You can wait till after fall tillage. Problem is if they're not combining until October first, and then they do their fall tillage, you you won't have a green plot per se to affect your deer movement or habitat or whatever until mid-November in that scenario because it's just simply not there until then. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. How long did it take for so, that? You know, once you laid it down, how long does it take? How many days does it take for something to pop up? Um, to where the deer are actually using it as a food source. That depends on rain. So if winter rye, if you if you broadcast winter rye and you get an inch of rain, it will germinate the next day. It will actually put out roots the very next day, and in two weeks you'll have winter rye that's three inches tall. Okay. But it's but it's dependent on that rain. Gotcha. You can same scenario if it doesn't rain for a month it won't germinate for a month. It's just going to sit there yeah. if it, unless the turkeys eat it all. I gotcha. So, 
when I do my when I do my overseeding, you know, the planned overseeding that is that's done as soon as my beans show a hint of yellow. As yeah. soon as as soon as they're starting to show a hint of yellow, I'll go right in there with my uh, UTV and I'll broadcast 100 pounds to the acre a winter rye. Gotcha. All right. All right. So we've talked uh, about food plots here, but so I, I think most people know that you do food plots, but most people don't know that you have a consulting job. So f- before we get into some additional questions here, I want to ask you, um, talk to us about what you do uh, as a, I guess, I don't even know what to call your type of consulting, like a, a food plot or a land management consulting and, and talk about um, what you do and like what you do for your clients. Well, I would call it, I would call it a, a whitetail habitat and hunting consultation. Okay. So, so some, some scenarios would be a farm is in great shape. It's got really nice bedding areas. Uh, it's got really nice travel corridors, uh, great opportunities for food plots and the landowner, the landowner hunter is just struggling on how to hunt the deer. Um, maybe, maybe there's already age class bucks that they, that are mature and they, so they don't need to grow bigger deer, but they're having a hard time getting one so that, you know, they, they've owned the farm for five or six years and they just can't get a nice deer in front of them. So in that scenario, the day might that 90% of that day might be on how to hunt the farm, how to access stands, where to put stands, uh, how to hunt a ridge top, where, where's this, uh, how can we put a fence jump in so that we can narrow movement down, uh, this, this type of stuff. And then maybe 10% on location of food plots, or maybe we should do some hinge cutting or some girdling over here so we can get a bedding, a bedding area for bucks or, uh, do some edge feathering next to the food so we can get some bedding for the does, but it might be 90% a hunting type discussion. The very next scenario might be just the opposite. The, uh, the landowner hunter just bought a 120 acre cow pasture and it's the draws and thickets that are there are wide open because it was in, cause it's cow pasture Maybe there's 20 acres of tillable ground. They don't know if they want to put the tillable ground in CRP. Maybe they should keep renting it out. So that's a scenario where 90% of the discussion that day might be on habitat improvements. How can we, how can we get deer to stay on the property where we're trying to convert a cow pasture into a, a really nice huntable property and everything in between. Gotcha. And every, and every different, you know, some, some hunters, I, I'll send out a, a pre-consultation kind of like questionnaire, and I'm not doing it to be nosy, but I just want to know. You know, some some guys, it's I'm hunting by myself. I have unlimited time. My work schedule is really good, and I have a $10,000 a year budget for habitat and food plots. The next guy might come along and say, I don't have any budget. So what, what can you help me out with that I can do for next to nothing? And it's me and my two kids that are hunting it and, and everything in between. Gotcha. 
and and so I try to I try to cater that discussion for what the goals are of the landowner, and not not every landowner has a goal of shooting five-year-old deer and doesn't want to make the sacrifices and stuff that it takes to do that. And the next guy might say, that's all I care about. Yeah. And both, both scenarios are right because it's the personal preference of that landowner. Yeah. So let's just take in like, what, what do you have the most of, uh, I'm going to guess, and I want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong. Hey, I just bought a property. Um, I want to, I want to, uh, change the habitat for uh, to hold big mature bucks. That's what I'm guessing is the most requests that you get. Uh, I would say, I would say no. Okay. I would say the most requests I have are, I've either owned this property for many years, like it's a family type, or I bought it. I've owned it now for five or six or seven years. And I, and I can't, my hunting's not, not getting any better. Okay. I'm putting all these food plots in. I got all these stands hung and I'm doing all this stuff that I see on YouTube and my hunting today is worse than it was five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I get a lot of that because I think most, most hunters want, want to do it themselves first yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And, and some, some people just figure it out and some don't and it, there's nothing wrong. And the first thing I tell guys is, Hey, the, the fact that you hired somebody, I mean, it's good for me. Don't get me wrong. But the fact that you hired somebody is to me, it's a good sign that you're open and you're willing to have somebody come in and critique and, and say, you know, Hey, if it was me, this is how I would do it. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a step in the right direction because a lot of people, they'll just double down on what they're already doing and 15 years later, they've got themselves convinced that, well, I have fun doing it anyway. So it doesn't matter if my hunting's getting any better, you know? So, right. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that too, I guess. Yeah. So are there trends that you see when you go on to some of these properties where like 90% of the time hinge cutting is the, is the answer to the problem or, or nine or, you know, 75% of the time it's, uh, clearing out invasive species, or maybe it's just some, something as simple as, Hey, uh, we need to move your tree stands down this ridge about a hundred yards. So I, I would say, I'm trying to think if there's, so I, at this point, a hundred percent of the time, the way a farm is hunted can get better. I've, I've never, I've never had the opinion. And again, this is just my opinion, but I've never had the opinion going on a farm where I've said, yep, all your stands are right where I would put them. All your access in, in entrance and exit routes are, are perfect and spot on, but you just need a food plot. I, it's, it's not, I've never seen that. It's always, it's always been, Access entrance and entrance and exit and stand location is just very difficult. It's just, it's just I don't know why, but it's just very difficult for a lot of people to understand where their scent is going and where their sound and sight, um, how the deer can really pick them off and have have the the whole the whole hunt is already over before they've even gotten to their stand. Yeah. And a lot of times when I go on these walks, it's really two walks. So the first, the first half of the day, 
assuming it's a one day. The first half, I'll I'll meet the the client. We've already talked on the phone, and they filled out the survey and stuff. And it's give me a tour of your farm. Give me a tour of your farm. Show me every tree stand and every food plot you have, and then tell me why you put that food plot there, what you plant in it, and and why. Tell me why you did that. Show me every tree stand, how you get to it, why you put that tree stand there, and just and I'm going to ask a ton of questions. And I think sometimes it's in it's actually kind of intimidating for the clients because I'll ask them, well, why did you put that stand there? What wind do you hunt it with? And how do you get to it? And they don't have an answer because they never, they never thought through that process. And there's not, and there's, there's really nothing wrong with that because you're, you're trying to learn. Right. But so that's, that's the biggest problem that I see um, that just about everybody could get better at. Yeah. And a lot of times that first half of that, of that walk. And then we'll, and so then we'll actually do the whole thing over again. So now I got a tour of the farm. I've already had a pretty good idea what I, what I'd like to do based on the aerial photo and the interview and stuff on the phone. And then the second half of the farm is, okay, I wouldn't have this tree stand here because when you're going into this tree stand, you're bumping these does out in this, on this ridge or, you know, I'm just making this up now, but yeah. And you start explaining that to them, and you can just see the light bulbs come on. You can gotcha. just you can once you start explaining and going through that process, and then and then you say, now if you take this stand and move it back, just move it back, you know, eighty more yards. Now look at how your access is, you know, and, and you can just kind of see. Um, you see the light bulbs turn on. Yeah. So, so it's almost like a big part of your job is teacher. Like, uh, you know, just like w- taking time to walk somebody through the steps of something that they're already doing with some slight changes. And, uh, you know, obviously there's other stuff that goes into it. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely feel that there are some people who get it versus don't get it when it comes to, you know, tree stand access and tree stand placement. Because it took me a long time to figure out that my scent, if there's a west wind, just doesn't go west forever, right? It could hit a a, um, a low spot and pool, or it could, you know, get sucked up by thermals, or it could get sucked down by drafts, or or, or swirl way back in the timber and cause you know something else to happen. And and it took me a while to figure that out, uh, and it just like be able to learn. So I can see how a big part of your job is educating people on those types of things yeah and then we've we've done podcasts before dan and where you where you've heard me talk about how i will well i will actually build a fence this is an example i'll build a fence to create a gate opening or a fence jump yeah or i will i will do like massive hinge cuts to where deer won't want to walk through there to manipulate the deer movement so they'll go like 80 yards over so that I can get to this tree stand and have access to hunt it and kill that deer. Right. So that's, that's a lot of the stuff that I'll also teach these clients because a lot of, a lot of these clients, they, they spent a lot of money to buy some really nice properties. A lot, most of these properties are just gorgeous, really nice hunting properties, or they will be, they have the potential to be, but then they just can't get a nice buck in front of them. Yeah, they can see them. They can get pictures, but they just can't close the deal. Uh, or 
by November 1st, the farm is burned out because their access and to their stands and stuff is, is not good. Yeah. And so I help them work through that process. Yeah. What do you think when it comes to now, this is more of like a, a habitat alteration question, but what do you think is one of the biggest things like, man, I, I've had this property for years. I just, it's not holding the deer that I want it to. I, I want big mature bucks. And, and aside from not shooting young deer, is there a, a habitat practice that a guy can do or that you would recommend to one of your clients that has the biggest impact on having a mature buck stay on a farm? Um, so that's, that's not one thing. Right, but, right. But it's, but it's, it's a series of things. So the first thing is, the first, the first part of that is you have to provide doe bedding that's close to food so that the bucks have a place to bed on your property that's not close to the does. Right. So it's, it's kind of a way of stacking them, stacking them up. Along with that is if you provide a ton of food and a ton of great habitat and you have a ton of those in farms, you don't have a really good likelihood of having uh, an appreciable amount of mature bucks that are going to bet on your property. So that's another kind of strategy. The other thing is if you have open canopy, if you just have just no cover at all, it's just open hardwood, that's that's not going to help you out. And And then maybe... Maybe the most important thing is how you hunt the property. If you're if you're bumbling it and you're burning it out, these older these older mature bucks, if that's your target, they just don't have a lot of tolerance for that, and then, and they'll figure it out pretty quick too. Yeah. So and they might and they might not actually leave your farm. They might stay on your farm, but you'll never kill them because they're just they know exactly where you're at, and they they hear you and smell you going into your stands, and they're not coming out to your food plots till after dark, and kind of what we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a little bit of a process, and and it's all it's everything all together. It really is. So it's like a one A, one B, one C type deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there really there really is kind of a handful of scenarios that'll, and you can have. You can have a scenario where you can kill a mature buck on a property with no food plots and marginal at best, marginal at best habitat. And if you still hunt it correctly, you can still shoot a mature buck on that property every year. Yeah. Yeah. However, if you add the food plots in the right locations, now it just made it easier to do that every year. And then if you add the bedding area in the right locations, et cetera, you just made it a little easier. So you see what I mean? It's kind of a, it's kind of a ratcheting deal. Yeah. You just, you just up your chances, everything you get right, you up your chances. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, um, I, I hear people talk about this deer conditioning, right? Where you're, you're talking about, Hey man, uh, if you're not on your farm a lot, right. And then the hunting season starts and you come in and you start hunting all this, you know, you could, bust them out they're gonna catch on they're gonna you know they're you know to this to this human intrusion and they're gonna they're not gonna be killable right they're gonna stay nocturnal or they're gonna avoid you or whatever 
is there ever an opportunity for a guy to spend more time on his farm and maybe check trail cameras so often that the deer are then conditioned to that type of human intrusion and then they they just like don't even worry about it? So I'll say two things for that. Okay. The first is the first is where I am in southern Iowa. I I won't I'm not going to try that. <laughs> right. So I don't have to try that. So why would I? So you should get somebody on your podcast that that has done that and it's been successful. I am I have not had that personal experience hunting in an area with low hunting pressure where I would say that I want to do that. Yeah. And I have experienced if you're in a low hunting pressure area and then you start hunting it incorrectly and you put pressure on that deer in a low pressure area, that'll have a tremendous impact on that local deer herd. As opposed to if you hunt the suburbs of, and I'm making it up because I don't know, but you hunt the suburbs of Des Moines. And there's people everywhere. Yeah, you can probably get away with you can probably get away with anything because they're they're used to camping and cars and horns beeping nonstop and scent. So you can probably get away with that, regardless of any kind of strategy because they're so used to it. But I understand the theory, and I've heard people say that that if I if I drive my four wheeler around you know all the time and I'm driving my four wheeler down these trails all the time and I'm checking cameras all the time. Then when hunting season comes, uh, the scent is, they'll be used to it. Well, I just have not had that experience. Gotcha. So if that's, if that's the case, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't recommend that to anybody and I don't do that myself. I don't have any experience to say that's the case. Uh, not to say that that, that that can't work. I just, I, I don't have that personal experience. Right. Okay. All right. Well, um, I tell you what, I, I, I think we covered a lot in this episode, uh, a lot for uh, some people to digest. Uh, so, Tom, if anybody wants to reach out to you uh, and maybe set up a consultation or wants to ask you some questions about, you know, maybe your consultation process, how should we get them in contact with you? Just they can call or email me. Uh, and the, the way to do that is instead of putting a plug the number and stuff right on your podcast here, but just uh, go to my website. It's full potential outdoors, one word, full potential outdoors.com. And there's a tab on there, like habitat consulting or something. Um, read up on that and, you know, hit the contact page and give me a call, send me an email. And there's a lot of people that'll call that just want to ask them you know one or two questions and and that's fine or you email me and one or two questions and and then maybe based off of that or we can have a conversation um you can you can decide if it's right for you gotcha perfect habit habitat consulting is right for you so perfect all right well tom man uh good luck with all the, your other uh spring and summer type uh uh i don't know projects you're working on and uh, i'm sure we'll touch base uh sometime this summer and uh have another uh, conversation about habitat and whitetails and uh, i know i know that you are like me where the it the big itch is coming probably pretty soon uh because i know that me personally i'm getting fired up for this upcoming season (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I never, I never stop scratching it. It never ends for me. As soon as the, as soon as the last day of the season ends, I'm already starting next year's project. That's just how I am. So.